Tom Elliott. Tom Elliott. Report to the Twilight Zone podcast, Liverpool, England. Tom Elliott. Tom Elliott. The Twilight Zone podcast, Liverpool, England. this point in our Twilight Zone journey, we can look back at episodes written by our main Twilight Zone writers and say that Rod Sailing has contributed several classic episodes, those giants that we'll remember for all time. So too have Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. But how about George Clayton Johnson? At this point in time, George Clayton Johnson's writing career wasn't quite as established or successful as his friend Charles Beaumont's. It was taking a little more convincing for him to get his feet under the table of the Twilight Zone Writers Club. He had two of his stories adapted by sailing for the show in season one, with The Four of Us Are Dying and Execution, which are good episodes, but how much is George Clayton Johnson and how much is Rod Sailing? We don't really know without having the original stories to hand. Then season two saw him get the chance to actually write the teleplay for an episode with a penny for your thoughts. Good episodes all and generally well regarded, but had he only contributed these three, would we speak of him as highly? as we do today. I think he'd certainly still be respected, but at this stage, he still needs the episode that will really cement his Twilight Zone immortality. And the episode that we'll be discussing tonight might just be the one to do that. So let's take a look while we play a game of pool. Jesse Cardiff, pool shark, the best on Randolph Street who will soon learn that trying to be the best at anything carries its own special risks in or out of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on October 13th, 1961, written by George Clayton Johnson and directed by Buzz Kulik. So Buzz Kulik's sixth Twilight Zone and we've met him several times before and he'll have three more to go after this one. A Quality of Mercy, Jess Bell, and on Thursday we leave for home. Originally it was to be Elliot Silverstein, who we've just met, directing The Passers-By, and he was Buck Houghton's original choice of director, but then he was assigned to The Passers-By, which left this one open. Now Rod Serling gives us a very short and to-the-point opening narration, and it's nice to see him holding a pool cue, you know, I always want him to be as natural and as part of the scene as possible, as if he's partaking in whatever activity the venue he's in offers. So it would have been nice if he'd just taken a shot and he stands up and then speaks to the camera, but what is here is absolutely fine. So as I said in the opening, George Clayton Johnson had been working hard and proven himself in the Twilight Zone. So apparently he pitched this one verbally to Buck Houghton and was allowed to go ahead and write the script. At the beginning of the episode, Jesse Cardiff, played by Jack Klugman, stands alone in a pool hall and he's ranting to himself about how his abilities as a pool player are given the respect that they deserve because of Fats Brown, a 15-year dead pool player whose legend still continues. It's an interesting premise because I do feel that often sports people, musicians, actors, even TV writers and the like can be put on pedestals after their death and they do become untouchable. Their legend only grows and their contemporary equivalents have an impossible task to compete with them even though often 
because of the advances in either technology or sports science. Sometimes the contemporary athlete is better, but they can never prove that because the one who's gone before has gone. So what if they did get that chance though? That's where this episode begins. Bat Brown, Bat Brown, report to Lister's pool room, Randolph Street, Chicago. Bat Brown, Bat Brown, Lister's pool room, Randolph Street, Chicago. So with a little Twilight Zone magic, Fats Brown, played by Jonathan Winters, appears and what essentially takes place is a conversation between two men for the duration of the episode. This is our cast, Jack Klugman and Jonathan Winters, apart from an actress called Margie List, who did the voice acting for Fats Brown to attend the bar. I, of course, had the pleasure of the lady who always steps up to the plate in the Twilight Zone podcast, Brandy Jacola, to call me to the show. So thank you for that, Brandy. Now, Margie had 57 credits to her name, but looking down her bio, I get the feeling that parts of this size were a usual thing for her. A lot of her credits didn't actually have names attached to them, so we get things like Woman at Counter, in a TV series called December Bride, she was billed as woman and man's wife. So although her credits ended in 1964, she lived until 1992 when she died at the age of 83. So I do hope her life was a happy one, but there is one other forgotten cast member that we'll talk about in a little while. It isn't a rib. It's you. You're James Howard Brown. Known to my friends as Fats. <laughs> I know it's a shock, but then you called me. I didn't call you. Oh, well, I, I didn't mean anything. See, it was oh, just sure. I was trying to prove sure, I understand it was just big talk. Is that it? You like to play with fire, but you don't like to cook. You're not as good as you claim, and you know it. Deep down, you know that you're second rate. Now, wait a minute! Are you afraid? Look, I've come a long way, boy, and not to be fooled with. I've seen your kind before. A little skill, a knack, a style. But when the heat's on, you fold. That isn't fair. You never seen me play? Maybe I can beat you. It's possible, isn't it? It's possible. Things change. Records get higher. But you'll never get the job done with your mouth. All right, fat boy. Dead or alive, let me tell you something. Maybe you are some kind of a legend, a tin god. You know what you are to me? You're a big balloon waiting for someone to stick a needle in it. Well, I'm the someone and here's the needle. Nah, you're like all the other legends. You live on a reputation. So the two men agree to play a game of pool. As well as there being only two cast members, there were only two sets. The show was filmed on the MGM lot and the only sets required were Pool Limbo, where we first see Fats Brown, and the pool hall itself. You said you'd give anything for a game with me. Anything? What are you talking about, mister? Just what kind of stakes are you talking about? Life or death. You beat me and you live. You lose and you die. Like I said, the episode is just a conversation and a game of pool, so if you have two people who aren't particularly engaging then this whole thing falls apart but here is its great strength i do think that klugman and winters play off each other beautifully pool players from a slightly different age fats brown the dapper player but by jesse's time things have became a little bit more casual it's kind of sad that when i began the twilight zone podcast both of these actors were still with us and I did actually look forward to being able to say that on the show but unfortunately lost them quite close together in 2012 and 2013 but they both reached very respectable ages. Klugman was 90 and Winters was 87. So Klugman at this point had already been in the Twilight Zone with A Passage for Trumpet at the beginning of season two and after this episode we still have death ship and in praise of pip 
to go. Now, I don't remember Death Ship, to be honest. It's been a while since I've seen that one, but in the other three Twilight Zones, Klugman always played some sort of tortured individual in Passage for Trumpets, and this episode, it's his obsession with a particular thing, a particular skill that defines him, and everything else in life falls by the wayside. Klugman had a wonderful everyman quality to him, you know, you couldn't look at that craggy face of his and say he was conventionally handsome, but he did have an incredible warmth, and even when he was playing a character like Jesse Cardiff, who may be unlikable in some ways, you know, his drive and his bitterness, you can't help but like him, and this everyman quality does feed well into the Cardiff character as a regular guy who works hard to be the best at his chosen thing in life. Do you know how many hours, how many years, how much of myself I put into this game? How many nights I slept on that table right there? Yeah, I did that. I made a deal with the owner so I could practice after the place closed. I haven't been to the movies in years. I haven't dated a girl, read a book, because it would take time away from the game. Still talking, nothing else. I'm good, mister. I'm... I'm... I'm good. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, there's a passage by Klugman, and he says, I jumped at doing anything that Rod wrote. When my agent told me they wanted me for a Twilight Zone, I didn't have to look at the script. I said, yes, a game of pool is probably my favourite, because I was already a pool shooter. John and I got along so beautiful, and in between takes he would tell jokes, and I would be cracking up on set. As you can probably guess, I love Jack Klugman in this, maybe just as much as I like him in In Praise of Pip, which has a bit more of an emotional centre to it, but A Game of Pool really cements him as Twilight Zone royalty. So Jesse takes a bet, and it's life or death on a game of pool, but is it just a game of pool? It now seems that pool is only part of what's going on. Just as much of it is the psychological game between the two men. Fats talks about how great his pool cue is, how it was made for him, especially for $600, and it made his living for 35 years, you know. He taunts Jesse at every opportunity. Everything is about breaking him down, psychologically. The game itself starts at 10 minutes into the episode, and the rest of the episode, those last 15 minutes, is made up of the game. That's how important this back and forth is between the two men. It's a funny thing. I was thinking if I sink it, you're really in trouble. Luck, I can run the table. And if you miss, you leave me wide open. Fats is the most aggressive with his psyching out of Jesse. Although it doesn't always hit the mark, you know. Jesse is more or less always on the defensive, but every now and again, he will jab back and have his victories too. So, to a degree, Fats is kind of the villain of the piece, and Jesse the hero, but to be honest, neither of them are really the villain. They're just using different tactics in their chosen field. But as he is the closest thing to a villain we have, who do you get to play such a role? IMDB Trivia says that this is Jonathan Winter's only serious role in his career. Now, I don't know if that's entirely true, but he certainly was more well-known for his comic performances. As a younger man, he served in World War II, and then following the war, he won a talent contest, which led him to being cast in a children's television show, and then hosting a talk show. Now, according to IMDb, this is only his fifth credit, which is quite surprising, really, but apparently he was already, at that point, labelled as a comic performer. Now, he wrote to Rod Serling asking to be considered for the Twilight Zone, and Rod Serling replied, and he said, The silence does not mean that I've forgotten, or that out of sight is out of mind, or any other cliché that happens to cross that incredible mind of yours. I'm still thinking planning and conjuring up an idea. I don't know how long it will take, but it will come, because it always does somehow, and in some way. You'll be hearing from me. So this casting was 
not so much controversial, but maybe a little unusual. So the director Buzz Kulik on that casting said in The Twilight Zone Companion, with a guy like Jack Klugman, you go out and get Jack Warden or someone like that. However, we determined that here was this guy who was such a brilliant talent, who would bring a kind of freshness because this was his first time as a dramatic actor. He'd never even been on film before. He was very anxious to do this well, and yet he was kind of embarrassed because he felt, my God, here are all these professional people, this crew and cast, and here I am. And not only did he have to work his dialogue, but he had to play pool. So whenever he'd blow a line or make a mistake in order to cover his embarrassment, he would go on for like 10-15 minutes in the character, doing some of the wildest, funniest, most marvellous things you'd ever seen. You know, it's hearing things like that that makes me wish that we had some of the uh, the outtakes, the offcuts from the Twilight Zone to, to see those little bits of cutting room floor magic. Now, I mentioned earlier the forgotten Twilight Zone actress, and that is a lady called Sharon D. Not much on her resume to really talk about, but apparently Fats was originally to have a girl with him but the scene was cut. I'm not sure whether it was filmed and then cut, or she was cast and then it was decided that they wouldn't film it, but however it stacks up, she just wasn't there. So Jonathan Winters was very appreciative of having this role, and he said, it was a very good script. I was so fortunate to play Fats. They play that episode on holidays on television marathons. I have been told that it's considered one of the best of the series. I was never offered many serious roles, always comedy, because I was labelled a comedian. So when the part opened, I was very happy. It's funny, with all of this talk about him being a comedic actor, and this being the out of the ordinary role for him, for me, this is the one I always remember him for. This was the first thing that I saw him in. And I am sure that he was much more well known in America, so that's probably why. But by the time he showed up in Mork and Mindy as an adult baby, to me, it was the serious actor from the Twilight Zone going to comedy. But he was a very gifted comedian and was very highly regarded in that field. Like Jack Klugman, I love him in this too. You know, there's a moment when Jesse says to him after a shot, you sewed yourself up pretty good, meaning that he'd not left himself set up very well for the next shot and Fats goes to get the pool cue rest and as he's leaning down to set up his shot he does this very quick little sideways glance to Jesse as if to say you know shut up you don't know what you're talking about and the timing of it and his expression is so spot on it's a great subtle little moment and if this is Winter's only serious performance it's a shame because he did it wonderfully. You know something, Jesse? There's more to life than this pool hall. It isn't right you're being all cooped up in here like this. You ought to get out a little, see what's going on. You didn't get to be the best sitting on a park bench. Spent a lot of time with that cue in your hands. Of course I did. But I took time out to live, too. Well, I've been places where they never heard of billiards. Fifteen ball in a corner park. I may not look the part, Jesse, but I made love, walked uphill, swam in the ocean. When I think of the wonderful things there are to see and to do, it hurts me. Yeah. To see you rotting your life away in this miserable dark hall. You're lying. You're trying to distract me. That's a lousy thing to do. Someone wrote into the Twilight Zone podcast recently and said that the people in the Twilight Zone were always sweating on screen and it hadn't really crossed my mind before, but I have been noticing it lately in the passers-by and now in this one but in this one it kind of fits with the tension that's building so maybe it was by design this time but it builds to this climax where we find out who's gonna win now i have pretty much sailed through this one in terms of what's going on on screen because at the end of the day two guys get together to play pool they talk and they play pool there isn't a great deal documented about the beginning and middle of the episode and that's because most of the writing on this episode seems 
to be about the ending. First of all, let's touch upon the ending that we got. Fats makes his last shot and sets Jesse up with a pocket hanger. A shot so easy to make that it's virtually impossible for a player of his caliber to miss it. And then comes my favorite exchange of the episode. You wouldn't believe this, Jesse, but personally, I'd like to see you in. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I've only been doing my job. Someone has to keep the flame. Someone has to weed out those who haven't got what it takes. You see, the champions, the legends, they serve as a purpose, a challenge, an incentive. I don't need a challenge. Everyone needs a challenge, Jesse. Someone great out of the past to say, match what I've done, boy, and make it better. That's true in all walks of life. Music, politics, sports, you name it. Me? I'm only a pool player, but I'm the best. You were the best. Wait a minute, Jesse. Before you shoot, think of this. Shoot that ball, and you may win more than you bargained for. There's nothing you can say that will stop me. Nothing. I'm sorry. I was required to say that. Not only does the pool game reach its climax, but this is the end of the Battle of Wits 2 and some great dialogue here delivered by two great actors and that final line before Jesse pots the ball where Fats says to him sorry I was required to say that is telling us that there is some higher power here something is governing this whole thing there are some rules to what's happening so when Jesse wins he takes Fats place and Fats says that's going to happen when Jesse leaves the pool hall. So, does Jesse die straight away when he leaves? Does he get hit by a bus or have a heart attack or something? Or does he live the rest of his life cementing himself as the best so he can become the legend? Because let's face it, nobody actually saw him beat Fats. So how does this whole thing work? I suppose that as well as Jesse taking Fats place in pool limbo, Whatever power is at work here also allows the perception of the people on Earth in the pool halls to shift from Fats to Jesse as well because nobody's going to want to challenge Jesse down the line if they don't consider him to be the best. So it's a bit of a grey area there, but who knows. So that's the ending that we got and I will talk about which one I prefer in a moment after we've covered the original ending. Now in the Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton said, I don't know that it was ever satisfactory. It seems to me we reshot that about three different times. We could never wrap that up to our satisfaction. So what exactly was that original ending? Well on the Twilight Zone Blu-rays, they've added a nice little touch where Jonathan Winters reads it for you. So let's have a listen to that. Well, this is uh, the scene that George Clayton Johnson, the writer, was really um, shooting for, but we shot several endings. This, as I recall, was the ending that he really wanted. And let me give you this one and you'll make your own decision. With a final look at Fats, he bends to the table. He carefully sights. It is absolutely silent as he takes two tentative passes at the cue ball and shoots. The cue ball hits the 15 ball. It rolls toward the pocket, hooks the corner, and bounds back. He is missed. Fats steps into the foreground, bends, sights, shoots, and sinks the ball. He turns slowly to face Jesse. Jesse stands frozen. He is struck dumb with terror. It is time to pay off the bet. Jesse, what are you waiting for? Get it over with! Fats continues to look at him without moving. Jesse, you said life or death. Fats, do you really expect me to kill you? Confused, he had expected sudden horrible death, not this. Jesse, you said if I won, I'd live. If I lost, I'd die. Fats, and you will. As all second raiders die, you'll be buried and forgotten without me touching you. If you'd beaten me, 
you'd have lived forever. Close shot of Jesse, reacting. At first, with sudden relief, as he realizes that Fats has no intention of taking his life, and then with anger, because he has been tricked. Jesse, you tricked me. Fats, you had to prove yourself under pressure. Any man can be a marksman if the target doesn't shoot back. Jesse looks at him in bewilderment as Fats packs his cue back into the case. Fats turns and walks into the shadows at the rear of the pool room. He turns, nods, and vanishes. Jesse shakes himself, blinks. With a cry, he runs to the spot where Fats disappeared. Jesse, wait! He looks wildly around. Close shot of Jesse. Wait! It isn't over. You hear? I haven't given up. I'll practice. Day and night if necessary. I'm still alive. I can get better. I will get better. He cocks his head, listening. Silence. And then slowly he turns. Another angle. As he walks back to the table, picks up his stick, and begins to practice combination shots. Jesse, under his breath. You'll hear from me again, Fats Brown, Serling's voice. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and, departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time, on the earth as we know it, and in the twilight zone. So there's actually quite a lengthy piece in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic where George Clayton Johnson tells about his side of things. I had been in Missouri with my friends Nolan and Beaumont and O.C. Rich and a number of other people to make the intruder. I was on location when I should have been working on delivering Kick the Can after having talked about it with a very indecisive kind of an outline and Buck was waiting for it while filming a game of pool. He and Rod had gone over this and wanted to change something that had to do with the ending. I had laid it out with a young man Jesse Cardiff lost, but at least could say threateningly at the end, to the dead legend Fats Brown, yes, but the thing is, I'm still alive, I have the chance to get better, and I will get better, I'll practice every day, you'll hear from me again. That's the tag for my version of it, and now Rod tells me he's changing it, he's going to make the other one, the young guy, win, and all for a gag, a kind of thing he had mentally made up and he thought it was worth this transformation. All of this is being transmitted to me through book without me directly confronting Rod over it, but with me basically hearing Rod's thinking. And then book apologises for Rod's thinking or support of Rod's thinking and me trying to bear Rod's thinking up, so he would go back to doing it the way I thought I could see it perfectly. Well, Rod thought the idea of a limbo where there sits the legend waiting to be summoned forth and to which the newcomer will be doomed to replace him while he goes off fishing. You know that whole visual of a smoky room with a man sitting at a pool table and a telephone voice saying, Fats Brown, you have been challenged, you have to head to Randolph Street, and he has to get up and go out. He thought that was cute, and I thought that it was dismal. I said, no, the whole idea is that you're trying to suspend disbelief, not jam it down their throats. Let's be sane about this. Just a slight tilt is all you need here. Those are my arguments to Buck, with me getting more and more stern about it, and him saying, look, we gotta do it. We're filming right now. If you were here, it would be a different story. If you could find a better way, we'd accept that, but you're not. You're off there. Where the hell are you? Get back here and do what you're told. And generally this attitude with me dragging my heels because what I was doing there, I thought was important. I wanted to finish it up. I had committed myself to it and felt that I could whip out this script on the way back, which in fact I did. I started to right kick the can in a motel on the way back from Missouri. So George Clayton Johnson actually didn't like the way it turned out, but there would be another chance for a game of pool to be made in the way he originally intended. And that's what was done in the 80s Twilight Zone. And George Clayton Johnson had some things to say about that too. He said, it was sort of done with me kicking and screaming and unaware that they had a remake privilege because I owned all the rights to these stories. Rod had only bought the right to make them into one film and then market that film till hell and gone. 
which he had been doing successfully as well. But now here they were remaking it and they had not come to me. Before that I'd only had to deal with Warner Brothers who wanted to make Twilight Zone the movie and of course they had to come to me because they weren't CBS. But this was CBS International, one arm of a great octopus that was the primary owner of the films. They point to this small print that says, yes, for Peanuts and the old 1960s wage scale, we can remake one version of it. I look at the fine print and yes, indeed, they can do that. So here's that 80s ending of A Game of Pool. You are the best. One, I'd live. If I'd lost, I'd die. And you will. As all second raters die. You'll be buried and forgotten without me touching you. See, if you'd have beaten me, if you'd have beaten me, if you'd have beaten me, you would have lived forever. You tricked me. No. No, you just have to be tested under pressure, that's all. Any man can be a marksman if the target doesn't shoot back. Wait! It's not over! I haven't given up! I'll practice. Night and day! I'm still alive! I can be better! I will be better! From me again, fat Brown. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time, on the earth as we know it, and in the twilight zone. George Clayton Johnson goes on. So they then took that idea and transformed it somehow at their will in this other show. But the way it was directed and written and the general bravura way it was played didn't work for the suspension of disbelief that's so necessary with these kinds of tales for me. I felt really dismal about it and said, my God, now this damn script is cursed. It's never going to get made properly. So I found a couple of actors, Owen Orr and Michael Green, rehearsed them to play these two characters, borrowed a pool table, walked around it, and planned out all these shots. So George Clayton Johnson was so dissatisfied with both versions that he made his own version. Unfortunately, I don't think that's seen the light of day for us, the public, to view, because he was kind of keeping that as a bit of a showpiece for any future directing work that he might do so i don't believe it's actually out there but if anyone does know then do let me know so which ending do i think is better it's hard to be completely objective because i've grown up with a game of pool being a certain way and i've loved it all my life that way in the ending that was used i think the ending works fine there is this suggestion that actually fats did want to lose, but his pride wouldn't let him just throw a game that easily. He had to be truly beaten, because he knew that being the best was a lonely place. The pool limbo is symbolic of the loneliness at the top, having to exclude everything else in life or death to be the best. So when he's beaten, it is actually quite liberating for him. And there's also a suggestion that true legend status can only come after death, and one can't truly be a legend in their own lifetime. A person's achievements grow in the telling by others rather than the actual doing by themselves. Would Elvis Presley be as revered as he is today if he'd 
grown old and continued to make music in different times of his life, away from that period where we know him as this great legend. You know, possibly it does happen, we can't say for sure, but the fact that he died young gave him immediate immortality. Countless giant rock bands have had a period of great creative and commercial success, then they've carried on and on, and you get the feeling that their new stuff is alright, but they were at their best in a certain time and place, and perhaps by going on and on, they've watered down that legacy a bit. Jesse has already cut everything out of his life, and his reward for that is to be the best, but it's also his curse. So all of these things happen in the version that we got, but I'm not sure that they quite hit home as much in the version as originally written. The Pool Limbo segments are perhaps painting that picture a little too explicitly, when maybe there should have been a subtler way of doing that, but I don't know what way that would be. So that's probably why I feel that the ending that we got is my preferred version. There's just a bit more to it, there's a bit more going on. And dare I say it, it's a bit more Twilight Zone. You know, whatever you do in life, you will often find a kind of poetry in that thing, and it's something that only you and your colleagues will truly understand. Whether you're a musician, a firefighter, a sports person, only you and your colleagues truly know about the ups and downs of that thing you do, the joy and the tragedy of it, the sacrifice, and sometimes a writer will be able to capture that and relay it to others in a book or a movie or a TV show. I think back to an episode like The Big Tall Wish where Rod Serling had this very poetic take on the downtrodden has-been boxer Bowley Jackson and he's at a place in life where he can't really do anything else but what he's known his whole life but he's just not up to it anymore. But I don't think the episode A Game of Pool really does that for the sport of pool, if you know what I mean. It's not entirely about showing the beating heart of the pool player and their own poetry. Its goals are a little higher, it's more about the pursuit of greatness and the loneliness and sacrifice of that, and the great weight that being the best carries until it's passed to the next person. It is a game of pool, but you can transpose what it's telling us onto pretty much anything else. So finally, I would just say that this episode about being the best and the immortality that brings has ended up being considered as being up there with the best that the Twilight Zone has to offer. It's a perfect storm of George Clayton Johnson really coming into his own as a Twilight Zone writer and two wonderful actors speaking the words of his tight and beautifully constructed script. I think it deserves its great reputation and is part of the reason why the Twilight Zone sits in its own limbo as the best, taking on all challenges, but it's yet to be beaten. Jesse Cardiff, Jesse Cardiff, report at once to Mason's Pool Hall, Sandusky, Ohio. Mr. Jesse Cardiff, who became a legend by beating one. But it was found out after his funeral that being the best of anything carries with it a special obligation to keep on proving it. Mr. Fats Brown, on the other hand, having relinquished the champion's mantle, has gone fishing. These are the ground rules in the Twilight Zone. Okay, so there we go. That was a game of pool. Now, I'll go to the listener emails and things in a moment, but... I just want to say thank you for your patience. It's took a while to get this one out. As you know, I came to the States um, late last month, early this month. And you know when a holiday kind of throws you off your routine? Well, that, that happened this time. So I've been kind of working over the past couple of weeks to get back into my routine, make sure everything's as it should be, you know, getting the stuff on Patreon that, that I'm doing and that kind of stuff. And now... We've done this episode, I'm more or less back where I was, and I'll be able to start putting them out regularly again. So I just want to thank you for your patience, but something quite 
nice happened when I mentioned that I was going to the States. I got so many emails, uh, tweets, messages from people saying, you know, if you're near where I am, then come and see me. I had friends of the show inviting me for a beer. I had friends of the show inviting me to their house for dinner, taking me out to lunch. Uh, someone, a friend of the show said they would show me around LA. You know, there was so many people writing to me and saying, if you're near me, let me know and, and we'll do something. And it was just really such a sweet thing. And I wish I could have taken up everyone on their offers, but it was either that I was just not close enough to them because obviously America is such a big place or my trip was pretty much on the rails, you know, on what I was going to be doing each day. So there wasn't much chance to deviate from that. So I couldn't actually get to meet anyone, but the fact that so many people wrote to me and offered those things was just really touching and, uh, and really nice. It's kind of formulated a bit of an idea in my head for something down the line, but who knows? We'll see. We'll see if we get there. But I just want to thank everyone who, who got in touch and offered things like that, because if I could, I would have came and saw every one of you and had those meals and had those beers. It, it would have been great. And hopefully we will get that chance down the line. So let's read some listener emails in submitted for your approval. first email is from Clark and he says, Dear Tom, my name's Clark. I live in NYC. I figured the Twilight Zone must have by now rippled into podcasts and imagine my warm surprise to find your podcast, both a record of and commentary on that amazing series. I had a rather unique introduction to the Twilight Zone. My mother, who grew up on that show and would grow up to be a playwright, wanted to share the Twilight Zone with my younger sister and I but she was worried that watching the episodes themselves might be too scary and at worst disturbing for our developing minds. So she would tell us the episodes as bedtime stories. She would remember back to the twists and turns and reveals and adapt them into spoken word stories, not so dissimilar from moments in your podcast. It was an eerie experience later seeing the series discovering the episodes anew as a teenager each one seeming fresh, and yet the stories themselves feeling similar and recognised. And here I am, a grown man, discovering the episodes anew yet again through your podcast, your insight, and your research. This past weekend, I was pleased to gift my mother your podcast for Mother's Day. She's a bit old-fashioned, and I was able to burn some downloaded MP3s to a CD so that she could listen to them in her car. She's thrilled. My favourite episode is Nothing in the Dark, starring Gladys Cooper and the 26-year-old Robert Redford. I'm not sure you've gotten to it yet, but I look forward to your review. That episode honestly helped me come to much better terms with mortality. In college, I remember having pinned up in my dorm room a portrait of Rod Serling, the disciplined writer, and a shot from that episode depicting Robert Redford revealed to be the Grim Reaper, after having asked, Am I really so bad? Thanks for your hard work and best of luck with the podcast. Well, thank you, Clark. And yeah, I think Nothing in the Dark is a season three episode, so we should be coming up on it over the next few episodes at some point. But the thing I really liked about that email is that you said you've downloaded some of the MP3s of the show uh, for your mum onto CD and she listens to them in her car. That is absolutely lovely. I'm, uh, I'm very pleased by that. So, you know... Thanks for doing that, and hello to your mum, if she's listening. I've had a message from Elijah, and he said, I had actually stepped in to the Twilight Zone, so this is my story. It was a regular day, or so I thought, in a sleepy little town of Martinez, around 6.30pm. I was at the soup kitchen getting a meal down near the courthouses, where the church feeds the homeless. I ate and was walking down the street where little did I know I was going to step into the twilight zone. So I was walking down Castro Street where I saw a ghost of a man who looked just like me. 
This was down on Castro Street in Martinez, California. I saw the man who looked like me in the window and was compelled to knock on the door and he opened the door. So I talked with him a little bit and asked him if I could take a picture with him. So I took a picture on my cell phone and asked him if he'd like to hang out the next day around 10 a.m. So I went back to the house and it was completely empty like he was never there. I looked at my phone and the photo I had taken was deleted from my phone. That is my Twilight Zone story. I actually stepped in to the Twilight Zone. Well, that's a first for the Twilight Zone podcast, I think. So thank you, Elijah, for sharing your story. And uh, if anyone else has had a strange experience like that one, then do let us know. So next up, we have a piece of audio feedback. And you know how much I like hearing people's voices on the show. This is from David. He's actually contacted us before with some audio feedback. And here he is again. Hi, Tom. Um, Long, long time listener since season one, episode five or six. I've been following along. This is my second voice message to you. First one was about the trouble with Templeton. This one's about the shelter a couple of episodes back. And um, I have so many interesting comments. I think that's a really, it's a very timely episode for for some of us, or for most of us to watch right now. Anyway, he, uh, um, here is, uh, I have a whole bunch of things I wanted to talk about. One is uh, a comment about whether their shelter is safe or not, if someone can, or if some people can bust into it with a big uh, pipe, metal pipe. Um, I think some people were wondering, is this bomb shelter uh, actually really safe? Would it protect you from a nuclear bomb if a bunch of people could break in with a pipe? And the answer is yes, it can. The key thing about a bomb shelter is that it's a couple of feet below the ground, which gives, which protects you against the nuclear fallout. That's really what you're trying to protect yourself against. That bomb shelter was in a basement. It had a closed door uh, because... Uh, they were talking about the, the limited air supply. Uh, it was sealed off from radiation. So that, that was a solid bomb shelter. I, don't, I can't see any reason why, uh, you know. And it had a, a metal or iron, whatever kind of steel door that, that would normally with, withhold anything it should need to withhold, except some angry neighbors, of course. So, um, so that's first point. Next one is uh, I'm out here in California, and lately there's this really, well, as our uh, president calls him, he's a really bad dude, or I don't know if he called him that, but, well, anyway, you could call him that, really bad dude over there in North Korea threatening to lob uh, nuclear bombs right at me here in California. And so, uh, not surprisingly, there has been recently, this is like in the last six months, um, there has been a noticeable increase in sales of bomb shelters. Uh, this is in, you can see this in areas like Texas and California. Um, it's, uh, so it's a current issue. People are actually building bomb shelters. And all the same questions that were raised in this episode are still valid questions people need to wrestle with today that I'll, I'll get to in a moment. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is whether you're familiar with what may be a uniquely American phenomenon called the prepper movement. If you go on YouTube and Google for preppers, uh, you'll see probably thousands of YouTube uh, videos, a lot of really well-produced shows about the modern prepper movement, which is basically what those bomb shelters eventually morphed into. Now people are seriously preparing, uh, really digging in and preparing to uh, survive an, an apocalypse. And uh, it's, uh, it's a thing here in the U.S. You may not be aware of that uh, in Europe. Um, it's kind of a... It's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, I, I could sort of understand it being here in California when you have someone threatening to lob bombs at you. So, um, so that's a thing. Well, I need to apologize because once I tell you this, there's no unhearing it. And every time you see the shelter, I, I think you'll, you'll remember this. At about 17 and a half minutes in, the neighbors are gathered around the dining room table and there's a birthday cake there. And they're all freaking out about, uh, you know, the world's about to end. There's jets flying above. Everybody's screaming and freaking out. And the children are just staring at this birthday cake, kind of going back and forth between staring at the camera, it seems like, and staring at the birthday cake. And every time, I, I just can't even hear what the adults are saying. I just keep thinking to myself, 
you want that cake, don't you? Go ahead, take some cake. And then the kids, each kid goes and takes some cake in the middle of while the adults are freaking out. And for some reason, that just cracks me up. I don't know why they put that scene in. It adds a level of silliness or silly realism or something. It's a very short scene, but I don't know. It's precious to me. I think this episode makes us ask ourselves two questions. Well, it depends on... Well, the first question is, would I build a bomb shelter or some kind of shelter to survive an apocalypse? And then... If you say yes, the next question you have to ask yourself is, uh, would I keep my neighbors out, just kind of like, just like that episode showed, uh, keeping the neighbors out, or what would you let them in? What would you do? So that's the question. And then if you decide not to have a bomb shelter, um, which means you're going to perish if there's some kind of disaster, the question is, how will you behave? As Rod Serling says in his interview with Bob Crane, I think I'm going to quote him here. For the human race to survive, it has to remain civilized. I think that was one of his key points in making this episode. And we see uh, how people's ugly insides come out. Um, I think as one of your other commenters or, uh, on this episode pointed out, in many cases, like uh, in the various terrorist incidents we've all been responding to, we see heroes, not people's worst sides coming out, but people's best, very best sides. In fact, recently, not far from me, uh, there, uh, there were two people who gave their lives defending a Muslim woman who was being hassled and attacked by an insane terrorist kind of guy. At their best natures came out. So anyway, I think um, it's, uh, I'm not quite as pessimistic as uh, Rod is in that episode. I think people's better natures would come out. So there's some thoughts from David, some, uh, some very interesting stuff there. Now, I hadn't heard of the prepper movement. I was aware of a, a certain kind of survivalist um, type of, thing going on in the US. I mean, I remember watching it on Louis Theroux a few years ago um, on one of his weird weekend shows where he went to spend some time with survivalists and that kind of thing. But I'm assuming that that's all part of the same thing. I don't know. But, I, you know, I checked out YouTube, like he said, and watched a few of them. It, it's definitely fascinating. It seems to be that they want to be ready for anything and a large element of it is a, is a breakdown of society, not just from a nuclear fallout, but, you know, society sort of going to hell and it being every person for themselves. Um, so it's quite interesting to just sit and watch them for a while and, and see what other people think, you know. It's not me, you know, it, it's not me. If, if people want to do that, then by, by all means, but... I think when we bring it back to this dilemma about do you have a bomb shelter or not, I'd be the kind of guy that when they tell us that when they tell us that the bombs are coming, I get the deck chair out and go and sit out the front with a beer and just say, okay, well give it to me then. You know, I, I don't, I don't think I'd want to live my life preparing for something that would never come because I think, in a way, you're wasting your life. Then you know, it's it's a bit different from someone who lives in an area that is often hit by storms, so they have a storm shelter. You know, something like that I can understand, absolutely. But but basing my whole life around something that might never happen, it's, uh, yeah, it's just not me. So thanks for putting me onto that, though. It's interesting to see how other people live their lives. And I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. It's just probably not what I would do. Now, David also told me in his email that he's prepping a podcast for something that may be of interest to Twilight Zone podcast listeners as well. So, David, when you've done it, when you're ready to go, let us know and I will let the listeners know as well. Okay, so that is all our feedback now. I just want to say thank you to some iTunes reviewers. I can't remember where I left off last time, so I'll just probably backtrack a bit. We've got NY Phil G, we've got Samantha Kelly, we've got Den Funk, Fisher, Jordan M. Pass, The Noble Vox, Max Collidey, Joseph Eleven, Stuart 96782, 
and DRM Ish Awards. So thank you all for your iTunes reviews. There's a good few on there now, and I always love to read them. It never fails to put a smile on my face. So thank you for getting in touch. You know, in terms of the Twilight Zone podcast itself, I've uh, I've got a few special episodes in my head that I'd like to do, but I think because we've had a little bit of a break for me being on holiday, let's just go on with the regular episodes for now. Let's get a couple of those under our belt because we've still got the best part of three seasons to go. But like I've always said, this isn't a race, you know? So I'll get a couple of episodes done and then maybe we'll think about what other special stuff we can do. So if you want to get in touch, then it is tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com or you can tweet me at twilightzonenet or if you want to contribute to the show, then you can go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast and get some extra bonus content there for yourself too. Now, so we'll hear from Rod Sailing in a moment what our next episode is going to be, but I'm going to try and get a bit of a faster turnaround on this one. So if you do have anything to say about it, then try and get those thoughts into me quite quickly. Now, I don't normally do trailers and things for other podcasts and that kind of thing. I like to keep the show pretty much on the twilight zone itself you know the show is the star on this podcast but uh, a longtime friend of the show mark slade has asked me to uh, put a trailer in for a project that he's been working on so uh, i will put that at the end so if you want to stick around and listen to that trailer then stick around after rod sailing's done its thing and have a listen to that okay but from me i will speak to you next time and now, Mr. Serling. We've had some performances of great depth on the Twilight Zone, and next week is no exception. A distinguished and incredibly talented young man lends us his services when Peter Fox stars in The Mirror. This is the story of a tyrant and his assassins, a shattered dream and the death of a cause. Next week on the Twilight Zone, The Mirror. Hannah Bay. From the Gazette Times? The newspaper. You called us, remember? Ah, yes, of course. Come inside, please. My name is Ordell Seether. I run this organization. Yes, so you've said on the phone. A secret organization that has controlled all media and manipulated all history for more than a hundred years. Look, I'm not big into conspiracy theories, so I'm having a hard time believing your claims. And what claims were they? Well, you said that you are a part of an organization calling themselves Wormwood Prophets Society, and uh, you worship a godlike creature that has been slowly taking over humanity. I said that? Hmm... I do not believe I would say such a thing. Look, you called me, mister. You made these crazy accusations. I have you on tape claiming you helped spin history. That you helped Hitler in World War II the same time helping the Allies. I think it's baloney, but my editor sent me out here anyway. Yes, I believe you are right. I did say those things. You said you have proof that God exists. Yes. Yes, I do. If you would step this way. <gasps> what the hell is that thing? Drink in his beauty. Marvel at his intelligence. Why is he in a tank of water? Listen to the stories he spins. Believe the truths he tells. I can't 
take my eyes off of it. He is forever nameless to his people, but we call him Wormwood, and we are his prophets. I can't take my eyes off of it. Wormwood Prophet Society features stories by Mark Slade, Jason Norton, T. Fox Dunham, K.E. Moore, Phil Thomas, and D.W. Gillespie, with art by Chris L. Burke. This strange and bizarre anthology is published by Rogue Planet Press and can be found on lulu.com and other outlets that sell books.